You're listening to Tuned with Alastair Atkin from the Atkin Guitars Workshop. I'm Alastair Atkin, and in this podcast, I'm going to chat to a few of the music industry people I've been lucky enough to meet over the last 25 years of being a guitar maker. Amongst them are musicians, songwriters, composers, and fellow guitar makers. Some of them you'll have heard of, and some of them you might not. Today I'm going to be talking to Simon Nicholl from Fairport Convention. The band started in the 1960s and are widely regarded as the inventors of folk rock. Simon and the band tour every year and their Cropperty Festival has gone on to become a real fixture in the British summer season. I hope you enjoy this chat. Hi Simon, it's really, well, it's, it's lovely to see you. Uh, how are you getting on? It's nice to be here. It's nice to see anybody these days, isn't it? <laughs> well, what can we say? It's been a crazy year. Work is just a memory to me now. Oh, um, yeah. And I, I still can't wait to get back to it. And it's, it's about all I dream of, you know, at night. It's, it fills my thoughts. I'm sure. And you're, you're meant to be on the road right now. Where, which, where should you be today? I am. I've, I've even got the shirt. I see. I see. I mean, that, there you go. People should know that there's a Fairport Convention winter tour T-shirt available. <laughs> And uh, on the website, where, where where would you be tonight then? I th- uh, I think we should be in Settle, Settle. In North Yorkshire. Now, is, if I'm in the Vic- wonderful Victoria Hall, is that now where? Is that no? Who's who's from there? It's um, Mike, Mike Harding. Harding that's there. right. Yes, that's where I know that name. So the whole band uh, should be out on the road now. And and it, what was it? A month tour or or longer? Uh, it's about five weeks. Right, the winter tour. Yeah. It's the only time of the year where we we go out with our own production. Yeah, um, you know, take our own PA around, have a support act, uh, same support act every night. Who opens the show for so this year? It was going to be Luke Jackson. Oh, Luke! Oh, he's yeah. That's, he's got to be feeling he's, sore now. That's uh, yeah. I mean, this is after many years of like him being in the runners and riders. You know, the, yeah. the probables and the possibles. Uh, and uh, this was going to be uh, a chance to introduce him, and mm. uh, he's rapidly increasing mega talents yeah. to our audience properly you know and it would have it, well, i know it'd have been a runaway success yeah it would have been a brilliant opportunity and uh but like all these things it's just rolled forward into next yeah. year and and hopefully if he's still around he's still available and we can afford him <laughs> then we'll take him out the road I, I, i'm sure he'll love that um now how many consecutive januaries and februaries have you guys played for uh, over the last years, when did you last have a, a winter off? Never, really. No, it's it's been an absolute uh, fixture in the uh, in the landscape. You know, it's like as essential to us, really. It's the opposite end of the year, I suppose, from the Cropperty Festival, mm. which is in August. Yeah, uh, and the winter tour is probably the thing we look forward to. You know, almost as much. Yeah, it's a different kind of experience because you've got. Uh, you know, you work six days a week. Uh, you're essentially playing the same set, and uh, there's tremendous stimulation during the day. You're meeting old friends and new. Uh, it's just a buzz getting into the van every morning mm. and moving. You know, oh. well, I don't know. it will happen again, and uh, it's it must do. We must believe this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I guess you that comes round very quickly to the question of property. And, and I mean, last year you would have, at some point, you'd have already been in major organisational sort of uh, mode when when you had to pull it. 
And uh, what? Oh and, yeah. And I mean, the the amount of uh, have you got a big team working on crop really? Must be must be big. It's it's on the on the on the actual weekend. Yes, there's a, there's a very large number of people involved. You know, feet on the ground, soldiers. Mm. You know, under under arms. But uh, no, during the during the rest of the year, it's basically uh, the organisation all goes across Gareth Williams' desk. Right. Uh, it's uh, we're great believers in sharp pyramids. Okay. You know, rather than, rather than sprawling. Yeah. You know, committee-based activity. I think these things work better with a proper sense of hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And Gareth has been our CEO now for fifteen years and more. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he's nurtured it beautifully. Um, You've never seen if you've if you've been away for five years, and you come back, you wouldn't notice any changes. Right, that's right. the great. That's the yeah. but but at the same time, saying that, the whole thing, every year, just runs a little bit sweeter, a little bit smoother because you're always learning things. Mm-hmm. Um, but last year's disappointment of you know when we when we finally realised, I suppose, um, in April of last year that things were looking very, very bleak and the possibility of anything changing and anything beginning to open up after that first lockdown in March. Yeah, yeah. Um, we realised we were going to have to do what everybody faced up to and, and uh, cancel. Yeah, you know? yeah. And everybody at that point uh, was fantastically cooperative. All the suppliers, mm-hmm. all the acts, um, all the traders... All the workers who were like, you know, got that week weekend yeah, week yeah. marked off in their diaries, they all saw it was nothing to do with us, and and, and there's tremendous loyalty across the board. So we, we were able to persuade everybody just to roll the whole contract forward twelve yeah. months yeah. in the hopes that we would do it. And of course, we offered all the ticket buyers, people who had already invested, mm-hmm. early bird buyers, and so forth. I mean, something like. I think it was just shy of 7,000 people had already bought tickets at that point. Okay, okay. And we said, okay, you can have your money back, of course, or would you want to rain check because we're going to take the same bill forward. Yeah. As soon as we knew that was okay, we didn't have to substitute any acts or anything like that. Everybody was in agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty well everybody uh, hung on to their tickets. You know, wow. they have the faith in the thing. So, oh, that's yeah, great. I think it was, it was only about 5 or 6% of people couldn't make that commitment then yeah yeah um so we refunded those people and and you know incidentally we've still been selling more tickets as as the time's gone on every week there's a, a small sales report as people invest in august of next year that's of this year now this year yeah i mean yeah. That, that's that's amazing and what was the capacity for for the um, license, property festival the, the maximum yeah. license is is twenty thousand, including you know, children who are not paid, including all the bands, including all the, the staff and the workers and the crews. So really a sellout is about 16 right. bodies, 16,000 adults on the field. Uh, but we've only, we've only ever done that sort of on high days and holidays, you know, particular, you know, anniversary years and things like that. Sure. Uh, the last one I went to was your 25th anniversary. and uh, 25th, eh? I, 25th, yeah, and, and the what, first you, one, I you, guess... Did you get a day off from your paper round? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, the first one I think was probably your twentieth, and I think I went every year for those five years, yeah. and it was uh, uh, glorious and and an education, as you can imagine, for someone like myself who was so into the acoustic world. Yeah. And and to see so many you know amazing acts up close, 
and and you know some some people I'd never heard of who I was blown away by and Whippersnapper is one that I remember oh, yeah. well Super and, and then ah oh, and then and obviously Chris went on to join um, Fairport and I, I saw Chris in Whippersnapper not Dave Swarbrick but then um, Dave uh, Dana Bra was somebody that I yeah. really loved as well and I'm still in touch with all these people still in touch with Dan. I'm sure, but I look at that, 25 years, more than 25 years has passed since your 25th anniversary. What, what are you at now at uh, Fairport? <laughs> well, uh, 27th of May this year, the band will officially be 54 years old. 54. That's incredible, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> but so when I, when I think, I was thinking about this when I when I'd sort of spoken to you about doing this, and I was thinking... That 25th anniversary that, that seemed such a big thing to me back then, we've just had our 25th anniversary of the business, um, yeah. and it just seems like a, a blink of the eye. I know. And, and has, has that, have you felt like that for the whole, now looking back at 54 years, does it still feel like that? It's, it's, it's just um, the same as any other aspect of your life. You know, I still feel when I you know, get on stage and... I feel exactly the same internal emotions that I did 54 years ago. You know, mm -hmm. there's still that, that excitement, that feeling of, okay, here we go. You know, we're in this together and we've Fantastic. got this open, open stage. We've got this wonderful new audience, tonight's audience. And we've, we can, it's up to us now, you know, we, we can make this work or we can walk out of here with egg on our faces, <laughs> you know, it's, and yet yeah, nobody wants yeah. that to happen. Everybody's invested in an evening of live entertainment. It's not just the musicians who go there expecting to have a good time. The audience really wants you to have a good time. And yeah. then we can all share in this, this thing that you can only create in that way. And that's why music is such a wonderful venture for, for anybody to get involved in. You know, and I think it's like kids growing up without dogs. Kids who grow up without you know, pets in the home are missing out mm -hmm. on something ineffable. You know, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't yeah. damage them in any way not to have a pet uh, any more than it doesn't damage you not to be able to have a rudimentary grasp of an instrument. Mm -hmm. But things are, it opens doors for you and it makes your experience across so many more things better if you've been through that period of cooperating in a band and, you know, at whatever level. Because yeah, yeah. just you, it gives you a way of standing back from yourself and looking at yourself through the your collaborator's eyes, if you want. When, when I look at your Wikipedia page and, and you see some of those names, <laughs> I mean, I, I was daunted with, with how, you know, how much was there. And, I mean, some of these names that you've worked with, I mean, Art Garfunkel. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm going to ask you, what, what, how did that come about? Um, it came about because uh, this was back in 1988, I think it was. I knew uh, and had worked with uh, a mutual friend, um, Paul Samuel Smith, okay, who was the bass player in the Yardbirds back in the day, mm -hmm. and he was uh, a, a very big wheel as a record producer at the time. And I'm not sure or not whether he'd actually worked with Art directly, but he had mutual friends in that camp as well. Uh, Art was commencing, um, oh, he's partway through a world tour, and he was he was moving from the Americas, I think, to Europe. And he had a bunch of gigs in the UK, probably a fortnight's worth. Mm -hmm. 
and he had a regular band, a uh, pickup band over here. Yeah. But, uh, for some reason or other, the guitarist, so it's only a four-piece band. Right. But the guitarist, for some reason, was at the last minute unable to fulfill his commitments. So with only about a week's notice, they were left with a, an empty chair on the stage, and they didn't, they didn't have an instant dep. Yeah. And for some reason or other, the, the guitarist, a guy called Mitch, didn't put anybody forward, which is, mm -hmm. would have been the standard sort of procedure. Yeah. I don't know the details. Anyway, somehow or other, Paul got asked a question, do you know anybody, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> We're really in a pickle here. And he called me up and said, how's your diary? Do you fancy this? And I said, well, we could run it up the fold and see if anybody salutes. I didn't have much confidence because I'm not a reader. I've right. never been able to read charts. Okay. I can read charts in a studio little by little if you've got you know time to you know three or four passes i'll have a song down with or without the chart yeah chart yeah. will help in that situation but this was quite arts music was a little bit more refined mm -hmm. more particular than i was used to playing at the time anyway i turned up at the rehearsal the other three guys were all knew each other inside out because they'd done this tour and they were you know, big name session guys. Brit Brits were they, or um, yeah, they were all yeah, Brits. Yeah, um, I mean, it was <laughs> Dicky Hopkins. You know, was the MD right. on piano. Yeah, Woody Woodmansey playing drums. You know, from Bowie's lot. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was me. Hello, yeah. I'm from the folk rock world. You know, it's going to be Simon and Garfunkel, isn't it? That funny. Uh, <laughs> Why do you think? The, anyway, but yeah. it worked out fine, and uh, we did like. I think it was only about two and a half days of rehearsal, and mm -hmm. uh, I loved it. You know, I, I did feel a bit spoiled because it was very high level of ritzy touring. You know, very yeah. posh hotels That's... and three nights at the Albert Hall and stuff like that. But but it was great and uh, a great experience. And art was, you know, pin drop, pin yeah. drop audience reactions. Just beautiful sound in his voice. I mean, he's still got a great voice, hasn't he? Um, well, this was like a while ago, but yeah, it's his voice is is it's it's a real instrument, you know, mm. and he's very careful. I mean, he's not the easiest of company, or he wasn't then, but right? Yeah, quite highly strung. Okay, not sort of like a knockabout idiocy that Fairport's famous <laughs> for. That's, yeah. I, I mean, all of you in the band seem to go off and do lots of different projects and working with lots of different people but if you cover all these genres that you've all covered it's incredible really you've had fingers in all sorts of pies um, yeah. really haven't you well i i i suppose if it peaked it was probably around about that time probably in my 40s and uh, that sort of age there's certainly less call for um, you know, 60 and 70 year old guitarists now than they, they used to be. Mm -hmm. But yes, I suppose we've all been, um, I've been fortunate that, that many of my bandmates have been been more than usually gifted. I mean, you, you take a rhythm section like Dave Pegg and Jerry Conway. Wow. I mean, those guys are just, it's no wonder they're on a lot of records. It's no wonder that Peggy was able to sustain being in Jethro Tull for 16 years that such a high level of, of complex music and yeah. big audiences at the same time you know we were running fairport all that time as a sort of second string to his bow 
and it's a phenomenal amount of work. I mean, I was knackered just doing the Fairport stuff, and he, <laughs> he was doing like two world tours a year with, with Ian Anderson. I mean, that was really my era when I was um, uh, probably just at school age, and I'd got really into Fairport and Jethro Tull at the same time. Yeah. And from the outside, I just used to think, how does this work? You know, and I'd be yeah. interested to know how, how you guys felt about him going off and doing that. Did it feel like it was at all getting in the way of Fairport? No, or? no, it wasn't, because th- what happened was uh, in 1979, the band had to face the fact that we couldn't carry on as we were. Mm-hmm. So we kind of drew a double line in the ledger as a four-piece band uh, because of Swab's hearing problems yeah, uh, and the fact it was a, it was a toss-up of him either leaving the band, being replaced, or us going acoustic. Mm and neither of which was an appealing thing. And we were in a position where we, our record company had dropped us, Vertigo had dropped us, so we were out of contract. Um, the whole business was still, at that point, reeling from the after effects of the punk revolution yeah. in 1976 and 77. So there was um, a tremendous upheaval. There was a, the dust was still settling from the, the big clear-out of the industry that happened at that time. Uh, there didn't seem to be a viable future for Fairport at the time. So we called it a day and 1980 dawned and things began to pick up in other areas. I started doing gigs with Swarb as a duo, yeah, which was something I'd have never have countenanced if the band had been viable. Yeah, um, Dave did this and that. Bruce Rowland disappeared off to Denmark to farm fruit. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Um, but uh, Peggy got a call uh, to stand in to Depp for the bass player in Tull, who was... Uh, was Glenn? But unfortunately, he'd been... He, no, it wasn't Glenn. It was... I, I, his name escapes me at the moment. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I didn't know him personally. But he was, he was diagnosed with a heart problem. Okay. So his doctor said to him, you can't go on the road. Mm. You know, you, you're just taking... It's too much stress. You should take it easy. Ian was on, on that same page and he said, well, you know, we'll keep you, let's, let's make the records and we'll pay you a stipend and yeah. we'll get a Depp in. So Peggy got this gig as a Depp and then off they went on their first tour. And sadly, uh, John Glasscock, his That's, name's come back. Yeah, yeah, John I remember. Yeah. He, he, sadly, he had a heart attack mm-hmm. while, while at home, while the band was on the road. So the doctors were right. Yeah, and then of course that meant that Peggy was, the chair became his, and he was on the records from then on for mm. the next sixteen years, and uh, so it wasn't as if he'd left Fairport to go off and join Tull. Right. So when and then in his time off, because Tull worked their diaries so that they were in blocks, so they were like get a six week break here. We didn't want to see each other or three months or something. So there's plenty of time for Peggy to reinvest himself in the band mm-hmm. 1985 came around and we were still doing the that fe- we were doing the Cropty festival every year just in august yeah uh, as a reunion event and by 1985 it was time for us to think about well isn't it it wouldn't be nice if we had a few more songs if we you know rehearsed up something fresh because we're just literally doing the reunion thing and mm-hmm. just stirring the pot a little bit too much yeah so Anyway, Peggy had a studio. He, Dave Mattox, and I had time together, and we had a bunch of songs that people had sent us and we'd saved up. 
-hmm. So we went into his studio and cracked out an album in three weeks. Was Gladys's um, Leap, is that? Gladys's Leap. Yeah. And yeah. that was, uh, although Swarb didn't want to be involved in it, for whatever reasons, we invited him, mm -hmm. but we, we cracked it down. The three of us had put the whole album down without really consulting him about the material or the musical direction. And it did have a different feel to it because in those intervening years, uh, we'd, we'd absorbed a lot of other things and we approached it with a fresh vision Mm. or three fresh visions, really, and we yeah. found common ground, and it wasn't the same ground we'd been walking on before. So we made, we finished the record without Swarb. It was received, well, splendidly by our peers and by the punters we played it to, and it was then natural to reform the band with some extra people. That's where Rick Sanders and Martin Alcock came in. Yeah. Yeah, and that lineup lasted for eleven years, which at the time was a far and away a record. Uh, and all the time, Peggy managed to to maintain and have a foot in both camps. And indeed, Fairport did support Tull uh, on a couple of American tours, which was you should have come to those. You'd have loved those gigs. It was about your time. Oh, I <laughs> I, I remember seeing it in the press, and uh, my brother and I were just like, yeah. "Oh, look at that!" It was Not lovely. Thing. Broad, Broadsword and the Beast was uh, the, the yeah. Hot. I I, yeah. I love that era. It's um, it's a, a, and I think your music, especially then, it did have such a fresh, new sort of um, outlook on on sort of English folk, and and it sort of had it kicked it ass really as did, well, yeah. really, I didn't mean, it? Martin Alcock was discovering so much about music at that time as an instrumental multi-instrumentalist he was he would never have considered himself a keyboard player but <laughs> needs must you know and and some of these arrangements that we were coming out, up with called for big stuff on the keyboards big symphonic stuff yeah. and at the same time machinery was you know the, the the technology was racing ahead so we started using sequences yeah. on his keyboards and that really did expand the uh, the sonic palette. Yeah. So it was quite. It was some of it was quite grandiose. Oh yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, it was bordering into but in a good way. Yeah. It, it had sort of you know elements of Pink Floyd in it, and and it was wow. you you were you were going for it in a you know production was really thought about, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it was. It was a you know, and I think those records still sound really good. I'd agree. But you know that was a phase, and life is a episodes really in a, in a long book hopefully a long book anyway <laughs> well it certainly is with fairport isn't it so if, if you were to go back to sort of um well the start really and and you you look at those fresh-faced lads and lasses could you you know what what was it like were you even thinking past next week or was no, it no no just uh in those, I mean, we are talking now about the summer of love, you know, 1967, 68. Uh, all bets were off. Everything was, you know, it was a youth culture. Culture and youth in the same sentence, mm. you know, hadn't been done. That, that, that was an unknown concept. Even what the Beatles had done in creating, well, I suppose Bill, Bill Haley invented teenagers. <laughs> but, you know, what happened with the Mersey Beat sound in the early part of the 60s, was taken to another level with the free thinking that went on and, and the way that culture just embraced so much, youth culture embraced so much. And before that time, you know, everything closed at 11 o'clock, half past 10, something like that. Mm. But suddenly there were all-nighters 
venues everywhere in London. And the most outrageous sort of non-conformity became the absolute norm, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as is always the case, you know, the great swing of the pendulum from one idea to its opposite and back again. Yeah. It's, uh, it really opened doors. So at the time, as teenagers, we didn't think of anything, anything odd about this. It was just a wave that we were riding. And it was fortunate for us that we went from hopeful semi-pros, you know, people who were actually beginning to get money for turning out and playing. Uh, but then we got signed up and a record contract and a management uh, inside three months of changing our name to Fairport Convention. So Incredible. that was it. So, you know, I was on a wage suddenly. Yeah, yeah. And and so you, you started, um, I mean, you guys were... Were you writing at the beginning or, or were you covering other people's music at the beginning? Oh, we were playing other people's music, yeah, to start with. The West Coast songwriter, singer-songwriters, that yeah. was our genre. Yeah. But um, the first record came along fairly quickly. I think it came out in early 1968. And there was a lot, there was a, there was a flurry of writing that went on within the band to pack mm -hmm. it out with ideas. Uh, notably, I think, from Richard Thompson, not as a solo writer, but he had a couple of mates from school right. with whom he was still in touch. And um, they came up with some songs and uh, and we brought in songs from people who were close to the band one way or another. Um, Joe Boyd, our manager and record producer, was very tight with Joni Mitchell before right. she was Joni Mitchell. Okay. Uh, so we had access to all her songs. Oh, fantastic. Uh, which, was, <laughs> which wasn't bad. I mean, I remember she you know, played for Richard and me and Judy and Ashley, uh, we all sat in a, a room at Joe's flat and she just played for about an hour and a half. All in these songs flat. we'd never heard of. Yeah, just oh. just to, we, you know, to show us these songs. Oh, well, I mean. We said, oh, love that one. That's nice. <laughs> did, you realize, that one. <laughs> did you realize how good, I mean, you must have realized how good she was, but I mean, could you see something very different in her or did it just feel like oh there's lots of these sorts of people around at the moment no, she's a no, good one she, she she did stand out i mean she was you know striking looking and um uh very canadian very mm. very north atlant north american you sort of uh, glamorous willow yeah yeah very posh guitar you know yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and this uh intent not the intensity that sounds daunting but there was just a a, a subdued power to her you know mm. That's an incredible experience, I think, for... I'm sure lots of people who will be listening to this, if they're into the acoustic guitar, there are going to be loads of Joni Mitchell fans. And, yeah. and to, to actually experience that is, yeah. is a, a real treat. I, I, that's amazing. Well, Joe, Joe was pretty well connected. He knew lots of people. I mean, he used to hang out with Phil Oakes, and mm -hmm. uh, he's a legend. Yeah, yeah. Um, Richard Farina, you know, these guys. I've not come across Richard Farina. I'll have to check, ah. him, check, in, check him out. Uh, Ian Matthews is a great uh, proselytizer on his right. behalf. You should check out his, his work on Richard. Yeah. Okay, I will. Um, and I mean, Joe Boyd is cited at sort of whether you'll agree, but discovering, I don't know if that's the word, but certainly introducing the world to so many amazing artists. And, oh, um, it still does. Yeah, what, that guy, his address book must be gold dust. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful character, and he's, he's still there. He's still creating new music. He's still 
Uh, and his his book on the period on the period we're discussing now mm -hmm. is called White Bicycles. It's still available in print, and I'd recommend that to anybody who's got any interest in uh, music at all, but particularly uh, the way that music was changed mm -hmm. by society and changed the society that was being affected by it uh, in the in the sixties, particularly in London. That's um... I'll, I'll have to look into that. Um, so, so if, I, if I can ask you about Richard Thompson a bit more, uh, at what point really did it become apparent that he was... I know he was writing and he wrote some of your your big tunes, you know. Would he dominate a, a, a sort of recording, you know, session? Or, or did it, was no. he somebody that was just, here's something you might like? No, he was, it, was a, it was a very democratic recording unit. And Richard, uh, famously diffident, you know, verbally, he had ways of getting his point across if he disagreed with something or would prefer things to go in a slightly different direction. Mm -hmm. That was generally achieved without any drama at all. I mean, we didn't have drama in the band, even with Sandy. That's Everybody nice. was very respectful of each other. Yeah. Uh, Richard's obvious strengths at that time were, were in his entirely liberated guitar playing. His electric guitar playing was the, th the thing that people would be most impressed by in Fairport's early days, I'd say. Right, okay. Because yeah. he, he really could... He never played the same thing twice. And he had endless ability to keep going with melodic invention. Mm -hmm. Like a, a, in very much the way that jazz players take for granted just a, a break could easily you know go from an eight bar break to 128 you know without phasing him at all and, and he'd just head down and he'd get in there and he'd go off and we'd just vamp away until he'd finished <laughs> <laughs> he could, yeah and that yeah. was that was the thing it was i mean it was it wasn't like okay here's your solo and he'd mm. play a solo and it'd be a bit like the one last night yeah and a bit different from the one tomorrow this was just, it could be any, any direction. He's just a free-thinking guitarist. And, and to do that at the age of 18 and 19, as a middle-class North London public school boy. You know. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? And, I mean, if you go and watch him now, it's the same experience, isn't it? It's, well, except uh, his powers have, have been refined and enhanced yeah. to such an incredible degree. And I was listening to a podcast of his yesterday, mm -hmm. um, where he was just walking around uh, North London locations with um, Matthew Bannister. Right, yeah. And playing, playing some acoustic guitar on the way. And I take it for granted when I listen to Richard play the guitar. But it, it, people say, you, you play, that, play him a solo piece, play somebody who's not known Richard, a solo piece by him. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, how many guitarists are on that? <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, who, why, who are the other people? You know, yeah, yeah, no. But his I songwriting, mean, his songwriting is is the thing that's grown, I think, in the last uh, you know thirty years or so, more than anything else. He's he's written some of the weightiest material yeah. that the country's ever. As an English singer songwriter, he's he's up there, isn't he? Uh, oh, one of the, one of the best, um, top of the tree, and yeah, uh, he's a very you know very an admirable chap too yeah no he always comes across like that um so you were you were 
you know these these new songs were coming out and i mean a lot of them you still play and and then obviously sandy denny is involved in in this and and i went to see you um there was do you remember that thing in canterbury at the record shop the, the listen back to legion leaf um uh, was that a couple of three years ago i can't remember but you told some really interesting stories I, about recording that would have that. been that would have been in 17 that would have been an anniversary uh, yeah, right. That would have been the 50th anniversary of Legion Leaf. But everyone from the Canterbury area who I expected to be there was there, and we all listened to the album in its entirety. And there were some questions and, and answers at the end, and um, there wasn't long enough for me. I, I wanted to hear more, really. Uh, the experience of recording that, was. am I right in thinking it was largely done at, in a house? I can't... Um, no, no. It was in a studio, was it? It was, we recorded it at Sound Techniques. Okay, okay. Uh, with a few tracks um, done at Morgan, which had a larger floor space. Right. And at the time was, um, I think they just installed a 16 track, which uh, Sound Techniques hadn't aspired to yet. But uh, no, we, re we rehearsed it all and created the album in a living together situation. Okay, that's what but I that was, that was. But it wasn't just to get together to make the album. We were recovering from the dreadful motorway crash that had killed Martin Lamble, our drummer, mm -hmm. Richard's girlfriend, Jeannie. Yeah. And everybody got like smashed up to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, so we were, we were reforming the band with two new members because Dave Maddox came in to replace Martin. Yeah, yeah. And Dave Swarbrick was incorporated from having hitherto been just a guest musician on a couple of tracks, mm -hmm. never been on stage with us. He just like contributed to some sessions. Yeah. So it was the idea of living together was to make all that gel that much faster. So we'd spent the summer of 1969 um, down near Winchester, mm -hmm. all of, under one roof. And then we made the record. And then we came back, launched the band and the record at the same time. So it was like, it was a kind of careful gestation period leading to a, here's the new baby kind of A moment. rebirth, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that album still stands up, doesn't it, today as, as something? Well, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was given a big gong by the BBC as the most influential folk album ever or something. Yeah. Which, no, pretty good. Uh, <laughs> it's certainly, it certainly, you know, you're saying about opening doors, it certainly did open a door into a brand new room that nobody yeah. had been inside before. And there's a lot of music in that room now. Yeah. Thanks yeah. to that record. Absolutely. It takes you on a real journey, that record. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many dynamics in there. And there's the songwriting. How many of those are traditional songs? I mean, Tamlin must be a traditional song. I've, yeah. Um, Tamlin and uh, Matty Groves are the two big traditional songs. Mm -hmm. um, there's a set of instrumental tunes which are all traditional. And yeah. uh, although we were sort of people pointed at us and said, "Oh, that's great!" You know, like rock band, electric rock band, with traditional tunes on the top. How novel! But in fact, you know, the Irish show bands had been doing that for forever. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It just it was you know, it, but it was it was a big part of what we did at the time, you know, to to showcase Swarb, mm -hmm. and of course it, it it gave Richard a big boost to his playing because there was somebody in the band with whom he could interact at the same level now. Yeah. Uh, so the two of them did this amazing sort of double act of mm -hmm. uh, you know 
outpacing each other with the Orange Blossom special and things like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was there was there was a broadside ballad on it called The Deserter. So that's sort of semi, you know, it's traditional by some standards. Mm -hmm. And then there were a bunch of songs that uh, Richard brought to the table. Um, right. a, yeah. a really good calling on song that that Ashley Hutchings and, and Sandy wrote between them called Come All Ye, which opens oh, yeah. the record. Yeah. You yeah. know, and that's that's a great record because that was written in the style of a calling on song, which is a traditional form. Mm -hmm. And what the record was attempting to do was to disguise or blur the line between contemporary songwriting and traditional songs and make the one resemble the other and, uh, you know, call into question whether a traditional song can be written. And certainly Richard's song, Richard and Saw came up with this song called Crazy Man Michael, mm -hmm. which now is a traditional song. There's absolutely no <laughs> doubt about that. You know? yeah, and it yeah. was, I th when did it actually become a traditional song? You know, at, at what point did it cross that line? There is no line. It's a spectrum. Yeah. You're yeah. just on that, you're on that spectrum somewhere. And so I look at that and, and, you know, someone that's done a bit of songwriting and, and not, you know, those guys were so young writing that, writing that intense material. Um, well, Swarp was old before his time. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, it's, uh, it really does still sound amazing. And it meet, is Meet yeah. on the Ledge is on there, isn't it? Is that the, no, that's uh, that was is, an earlier record. Oh, was that it? Was one okay. Richard's yeah. earliest solo record, solo attempts. That's on the second album. Second album, yeah. But then, of course, you know, the, the, there were three albums came out in 1969, including Legion Leaf. And we did lots of gigs and we had a motorway crash. <laughs> it's incredible what people achieved, wasn't it? So, so quickly. It was. Uh, it was, yeah. It's, I mean, I, but you're young and you just, do, you just do what you can when you're young and you don't question whether you should or. And uh, hopefully come up smiling. Yeah, well, you can do that, can't you? When when you're when you're young and you've got all all that going on without all the commitments we all get, but uh, to actually look back at how many of those bands from that era and made so many great records in such a short period of time, and all played with each other on the same bills. Yeah, that's the that's the best thing. That so so have you got any sort of really memorable either gigs or, or eras that you can say you know oh, you knew everyone back then it, it felt like um well we were you know we had a a, a proper london agency we were on a, a really good record company with with island records mm -hmm. yeah so we were in the swim i mean the thing is that the, the fairport just like never sort of made the commercial grade we never we never cut the mustard with the with the money men Mm -hmm. um, Island Records were fantastically loyal to us. You know, they issued something like seven or eight albums, none of which made them any money. <laughs> uh, and I remember in, I was having, I had a sabbatical between 72 and 75. Right. Before I rejoined. And in that period, somebody at Island figured out that Fairport had never had a golden record. We never, uh, never sold enough discs. <laughs> to get adult gold disc levels. So what they did, they did an accounting exercise and totted up the totality, the aggregate number yeah. of our sales and said, if we add them all up together, we can give them a gold disc. <laughs> and that's what they did. <laughs> oh, so, you know, there was this sort of quite a fun little presentation, but that was, that was an, an illustration of the fondness in which the band was regarded. Mm -hmm. um, you know, eventually all things come to an end and, and we did get dropped and we moved on to, to Vertigo and then 
they dropped us and uh, then we became entirely autonomous in 1979 yeah. and ever since then we've we've done everything ourselves you know we're our own agency we're our own management our own record company we do the whole thing i mean that's quite a common thing now isn't it in today's music it is music but back then world. yeah back then you couldn't do it you couldn't have a record company there were no there were no manufacturing or distribution uh, opportunities there was no structure to get a record out and into the shops you couldn't get a record into wh smith if you were just joe blogs and you've got like a box of 50 in the back of the car you know they're not, <laughs> yeah. they're not gonna have it from you <laughs> no you know no. it was a it was a uh, cartel effectively of half a dozen big companies and those companies still exist you know but, but the music industry changes every seven years anyway it's, mm -hmm. it's a complete makeover either the technology changes it or some um you know great hulking takeover yeah you know they, they swallow each other up personnel um, changes and yeah but yeah. now of course you know and now with, the, with this technology we're using at the moment to talk to each other we will take that for granted and kids who are growing up with it who are you know the digital natives make their own records their own ways and they they move that music around the world in different ways yeah luke jackson is a great example of that isn't he yeah he's sort of able to and, move in his own world quite yeah quite well. and then of yeah. course this current the current situation that we all find ourselves in has accelerated that in some ways you know and and uh, created yet further avenues of of expression mm -hmm. so i don't know so, i'm happy i'm happy to stick with what we know though and and i'm too old to to start changing that uh i just want to get back in the van <laughs> get back in the van that's uh that's a an exciting thought and i i i mean do you do you speak to the rest of the band regularly through this oh, yeah, whole period yeah. and you're all yeah. in contact text you got a yeah, whatsapp group or something have you yeah we're what's we're whatsapping away and you know we haven't done a we haven't done a group zoom meeting that's not sort of been no. necessary but i mean it's that's there if we want to discuss anything big yeah but no i mean peggy's in uh peggy's been in france at his his place over there in Brittany. um since mm -hmm. March oh, really right. he's not coming back he's been there so long he's actually applied for uh, dual nationality now oh lucky chap good idea yeah, well, he's got he's got to because you know he's only yeah. allowed to stay there for 90 days and he's already been there for 330 <laughs> oh it's, it's a mess isn't it and I mean do you guys tour much on the continent um well this October just gone we should have been in uh, Scandinavia mm -hmm. as part of our regular thing yeah Again, that's been rolled forward to next next October now, but uh, we have and we haven't. Um, yeah. You know, down the years in different times, we've done different amounts of work in different territories, yeah. uh, and it's always been a joy. You know, it's always been. I love, I love the touring, and I love you know being in a van. You know, yeah, going to being out there and, with the lads and uh... and, st and but you know, it's, it's I find it very stimulating. Yeah. Travel. Yeah. Do you um, do you guys write or anything on the road? Is there much sort of creativity going on? Well, or? Chris is Chris is the only writer in the band, really. Right, Chris Leslie, yeah. and he he's writing all the time. It's going on up there. He's a very busy boy. Yeah, yeah. As, as, I mean, Whippersnapper was the band I remember him in yeah. first. But does he have other side projects going on? No, no, not well? since he joined us. He joined us in '96. 96 that's yeah. uh, that's almost yeah. 25 years isn't it yeah it's 25 it is. years wow 
yeah he's he's got a solo a, a, you know a solo string to his bow he, he makes his own solo records and he does some solo work he's he's done gigs for debs and me and yeah. uh, it's you know he's gripping and really it, it gives him another form of expression because when he's writing for the band he's writing for the band mm-hmm. and uh he structures his arrangements around what the other four of us can bring to it when you see him do those songs in a different context solo they're completely reinterpreted and at the same time he's writing songs that wouldn't fit the band but he can do a great job on yeah yeah it's just got a good yeah needs a different outlet for i guess although yeah. I, I, the last thing he was doing was he's he started because he's a qualified fiddle maker as well ah. he's uh, he's got that board he's gone back to making a fiddle for somebody oh really you know, from scratch well good yeah. for him that's yeah. uh, i mean that's the the side of this pandemic which we were really frightened about at the beginning but it's interesting how many people have just got stuck into um playing the guitar again mm. in in this sort of period and uh, well you're fortunate you've been able to keep working haven't yeah you? yeah we, we are incredibly fortunate and that side of the music industry has really been you know very very busy and then we watch all of our you know customers and friends like yourselves you know it's still amazing to see how many people are keeping a very positive attitude and are constantly you know I, I speak to lots of lots of artists and hoping to get back out in some form this year um do you feel uh, when you're talking about property how how much confidence it how do you find the confidence to to know what to do about that? Are you just sort of being guided of what's happening on a the same no, way as we all all are, I guess? We are uh, we're fortunate in that it falls in the in August, in the middle of August. So we we're further down the calendar than Glastonbury, for instance, yeah. who have you know thrown the towel in this year. But mm. on the other hand, Glastonbury's in a world of its own. It's yeah. the scale of it is you can't compare anybody else's festival to that. I mean, it's like a two-month build. Yeah, we get us knocked up in five days. <laughs> really, that's good going there. Well, not quite. But, you know, <laughs> a, there is a difference in scale. Uh, yeah, you know, which you can't yeah. compare. You know, and we are, you know, as a as a company, um, everybody. It's like I was saying earlier about the audience wanting a gig to be a success everybody wants the festival to go ahead everybody wants you know mm-hmm. the local council wants it to go westminster wants it to go ahead the arts council who were, we were fortunate enough to get a grant to take care of the overwinter expenses of not having earned any money at all yeah. for the company last august you know we got we were fortunate to get uh, a, a grant from which we applied for but didn't expect in the, mm-hmm. we'd, we'd receive uh, so they want it to go ahead you know it's a big thing it's a yeah. it's it's a big event for the whole community in North Oxfordshire. Yeah. yeah, not just the people who have got it in their diaries. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's obvious when you get there that you know it's a tiny little village, isn't it? And and yeah. the the way it's taken over by by everyone who arrives and and uh, yeah. it's it's uh, yeah, it's a special thing. It's a and, highlight for everybody involved with it. Yeah, not just so us. If, if you have to, um, could there be something where you'd have to change the capacity in order to make well, it work, or, or does no one talk about we've this? Already, we've already planned for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna, and I think the, the, it will naturally, it will, it will naturally shrink in size. 
this year, you know, mm. people are going to be cautious. Yeah. Um, and there's much water to go under the bridge, you know. Yeah, yeah. We've all got Absolutely. to get our jabs first and then see what develops after that. Got any jabs lined up yet, Si? I'm watching the postman. He didn't bring me anything this morning. <laughs> well, my mum my got I it am, down the road I in am, Bridge. I am in the current cohort, though, so I'm hopeful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Jerry, Jerry's had his. Peggy's waiting for his, but he's in a different situation being in France. But, yeah, you know, Jerry's yeah. the elder, elder statesman in the band, and he's already... He's done. done. Good, good, good. Oh, well, hopefully we'll... Uh, We'll be back out watching you soon enough. I remember seeing you have um, Robert Plant on stage at at, um, yeah. at Cropperty, and you probably get this asked this sort of thing all the time. But it's so obvious when you see someone like him on stage with you guys, how proud he is to be there. And and I think for anyone who's been a fan of of you know bands like Led Zeppelin who are massive. You get cited by so many people as being a real influence to them. Well, you know, Peggy and Peggy and Planty were kids together, really. You know, back in before he joined Fairport, you know, he was in the Birmingham Musical Mafia, <laughs> and they were, you know, they were in in and out of each other's bands all the time, and yeah. they go back that far. And there's a lot of shared history and a lot of deep affection between all members of that community. You know. I'm quite jealous of it, but then, you know, I was a Londoner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Planty is, is tremendous company, and he has been genuinely uh, affectionate to what we do and supportive, and uh, we're close. I mean, a couple of years ago when he launched his current band, he wanted to get some audience experience with it, but without doing a sort of launch. Mm -hmm. So uh, on the winter tour... I think three years ago, it might have been four, I don't know, but a few years back, we jiggled things around and, and we slotted him in, gave him a 40-minute set at three of the gigs on, right. our winter, on our winter tour. So we, we cut our set down a bit, we cut the support act set down a bit, and we, we put them on, <laughs> put his band on. So he was like sort of unannounced. But, uh, you know, the word got out a bit, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was the sort of thing. We were a favour we were able to give him. So he had mm. an audience, a, a sort of suitable audience, I suppose, a receptive audience, a you know, safe audience. Yeah. But he, he had a new musical approach. Uh, and he wanted to put his toe in the water and see if, see if it was going to work, really. Because mm -hmm. you can't tell. You can, just, you can rehearse till the cows come home in a barn or something. But yeah. until you get it in front of an audience, you don't, you don't have that proper bounce back of feedback from the crowd so uh, the fact that he felt comfortable to ask us was like you know that was a quite an honor and it went really well yeah yeah and it, you know one hand washes the other it didn't do us any harm and it did him some good no that's uh that's that that they must have been very pleased to have been there those uh those guys who were watching those nights that would have been a a, a blast yeah, it was a, it was yeah. A cheer up. yeah um so, who are you listening to at the moment? Are you do you listen to much music yourself when you're not sort of being a musician or uh... not? Yeah, it's funny that I I don't listen to much new music. I don't know whether this is because there is a sort of an absolute capacity with which you know you you top this up to the brim and then you know if you want to do any more room for anything more, you got to shut something else. <laughs> but no, I haven't listened to that much 
what you call new music. But we're, you know, we're listening to, we're watching, we've got uh, online tickets to the Celtic Connections, which ah. is going on at the moment, yeah. and which Debs would have been up at uh, for work anyway. Mm-hmm. And they're presenting that really well. It's a, it's a terrific show. Oh, good, uh, good. So that's like, you know, there's, there's, and there's new acts coming through on that uh, all the time. Yeah. I get pointers on, um, on the Book of Face, you know, got some friends there who say, oh, you, have you seen this? And it's so easy to, you know, you're a click away from something that you haven't heard before. Yeah, but, yeah. No, I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to embarrass myself by pointing at people who are dreadfully old hat that I've just discovered. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is kind of, uh, I find myself um, going back to stuff that I used to listen to a long time ago and revisiting yeah. it. And, yeah. and then occasionally something crops up and, you, and it connects with you, doesn't it? And, uh, but I don't know if as you get older, your capacity to like new things kind of goes. It feels like it does a bit. Um, well, there's some, somebody said something, something strange happens to music every time you have a birthday and something very strange happens to music every time you have a birthday with a zero at the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I and mean, as I just had one of those. <laughs> Was it your 70th, was it? It oh. was, back in October. So it's a delayed party. We have to have a delayed party. On Absolutely. That. Maybe a summer, a summer gathering in a field somewhere in Kent. You heard it here first. Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> well, Simon, I think we've had a... It's been a joy to talk to you and, and catch up. And um, I look forward to being able to meet in person and perhaps enjoy some music yeah. and, and beers at some point. Well, we point. can't wait. I know Debs is going to try and get some... Uh, Fairly spontaneous open air gigs going as soon as the weather is is good to us, but hopefully by April, because we've managed to do nine shows in uh, September and October, just in the garden here and up at the cricket club, and that's uh, that's a reasonable target to go for 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 live music in our area. Yeah, actually, for anyone who doesn't know, um, Debs is um, Debs Earl who runs Folk in the Barn in in the Canterbury area. She puts on lots of gigs. Um, and has done for it's been 20 years or so I think it will be very soon it'll be 20 (laughs) I I remember her coming into the workshop the first uh, gig she ever did and she said can I put this poster up and and we were like yeah please do and uh, we looked at it and thought oh that's interesting she seemed very nice (laughs) didn't expect to see her again and uh, yeah she's uh, she's become a real sort of important member of the the, the music community in in the East Kent area. She said, she? I mean, uh, she was, you know, last year we would have done 30 shows, which is about oh. normal. And of course, that was yeah. all cut off at the knee. Terrible yeah. loss. Yeah. Anyway, it's about live music. Keep the faith. You keep making the guitars and. You keep playing them. We'll keep spreading the word. Yeah. Simon, lovely to speak to you. Take care. You too. Take care, Astor. Bye bye. Well, that was my chat with Simon Nicholl from Fairport Convention. We're looking forward to seeing them back out on tour as soon as it's possible. If you enjoyed the podcast, please review us. Apparently a five-star review really helps spread the word of the podcast. I'll be back next week to speak to another guest. You've been listening to Tune with Alistair Atkins.